You are listening to The Coach's Corner with your host, Alex Ramirez, on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Good evening, and welcome to the Coach's Corner, presented by Pro 10 International and Pro 10 Global Sports. Today is Thursday, May 29th. I am your host, Alex Ramirez. Joining us today is ATP WTA journalist Pete Zebron. We're having a few technical difficulties getting started this evening, but we are live and on the air. Remember, you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro 10 Radio. Uh, Pro10Radio.com. You can check that for all the podcasts and future show information. And while you're on the front page, click on the live chat room we just installed, and you can chat with us live. While you're there as well, please remember that we have just started a campaign to support the uh, orphans at the Alora Academy in Africa that serve the less fortunate children across the slums of Kisumu City and Western Kenya. So just click on the Donate button at the front page. It's a great cause. Today we have a great show for you today. We have two guests with us tonight. My first guest won her place in history books of all-time winners with 10 Grand Slam championships in doubles and mixed doubles from 1980 to 1984. She is one of only 20 women in history in the open era of tennis who have won 10. She won three U.S. Open titles, two Wimbledon titles, four French Open titles, and one Australian Open title. She was ranked number one in the world in doubles in 1980 and 81, reached a career high of 11 in the world in singles in 1980. She's a member, she was a member of the World Team Tennis Championship teams, the Boston Lobsters, San Antonio Rackets, and the Dallas Stars. Went on to win the 35 and over women's doubles at the U.S. Open in 1997. Oh, and also in movement 1997. Today she's a doctor and developed the Mock Ford training system. Dr. Ann Smith, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us. And we'd like to start off the show by getting to know uh, Ann Smith before she was a PhD doctor, before she was a Grand Slam champion winner. Uh, how did you get started in tennis? Uh, what brought you to the game and, and what made you love it so much? Well, I, I first started playing tennis when I was 10 years old. And I didn't have my first lesson until I was 11. And then a year later, I got my highest ranking in the junior nationals at number three. So I, I took to it really quickly. You know, I was a good athlete. I liked to play football in the neighborhood with the boys and basketball and um, just got involved in tennis because my parents had uh, seen a Davis Cup match with Arthur Ashe in Dallas, and then they started playing. So that's kind of what got me into, into tennis. That is great. Thanks for sharing. Pete, do we have you on? I don't think yes. I have Peter on yet. Okay, I thought he was on. Um, falling in love with tennis. Um, was it was growing up? Did you have a, a dream of just playing professional tennis, or were you just seeing how good you could get when you were training? 
Well, I, I think I was always very com- uh, very competitive and um, perfectionistic and wanted to always uh, do really well. And I remember, I think I was about 12 years old, and our family took a trip over to England, uh, and we went to Wimbledon. Okay. And I remember um, bending down. We, I guess we got to go out to center court, and I bent down, and I, I took some grass, and I said, I'm going to play here one day. So... I think it was pretty quick that I realized that um, I wanted to be a professional, and you know I had a had a lot of success early as a junior. Right, right. And so you were born and raised in Texas. You were telling me off the air, born and raised in Texas. Yes, born and raised in Dallas. In Dallas, Texas. I'm a Texan myself. I'm way over on the west side of El Paso, but uh, I was in the ballpark there. Um, yeah. So you started. Uh, you started winning titles with Martina Navratilova, then started playing with Kathy Jordan, uh, mm-hmm. where you had some significant success. What prompted you to make the change in doubles partners? Yeah, can you imagine me not continuing to play with Martina? Um, I we know. first met, yeah, uh, Martina and I met, I think I was about 18, might have just turned 18, 19 years old. Um, I got a call, or my dad got a call from Bob Kraft, who was the, well, he's the owner of the Patriots, but at the time he owned the Boston Lobsters. And Greer Stevens, who played for the Lobsters, uh, I guess ran into the stands after shot and hurt her knee and everything. So he wanted to see if I could come and play for the team. And Martina Navratilova was on the team. So um, that's kind of how we met, and uh, we played some doubles there, and, and we played some tournaments and, and did well. And actually, I can't remember why we didn't uh, keep playing. I remember she did play some with, with Billie Jean King. I played some with um, Carrie Melville Reed. And then I got with Kathy, and, you know, we won all the Grand Slam titles together. So it turned yeah, out okay. You did. You did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that nice nice story there. Uh, and, and I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on um, – how you got to uh, play with Kevin Kern. You won three Mux doubles, mm-hmm. t- major titles with him. How did that uh, partnership come about? Yes, Kevin and I, um, we won two U.S. Opens and Wimbledon. And I think I was probably about 19, 20 years old. Uh, and my father, who was always very involved in my career, he had a friend in New York named Hot Mr. Heisausner. And I think Kevin Curran stayed with Mr. Zausner or something, and so we just got paired up to play mixed doubles. And I can't remember exactly when. Uh, I think it was pretty quickly that we won won the U.S. Open. So I remember I played with Stan Smith, probably my first U.S. Open, and then I think after that it was with, with Kevin. So he was a fabulous partner. Uh, enjoyed playing with him. You know, tall, powerful, very fast. Um, it was nice being at net when he was serving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely so, advantage. you know, he's an advantage. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you enjoyed your success on the tour, on the WTA tour, retired and rejoined the WTA tour in 2005. What prompted you to make the return playing competitive tennis at that time? Well, I was at the time I was in uh, – living in the Boston area, and I was working in, in Dean College, which is a small, it's a two-year college uh, in Franklin, Mass., 
and I was the director of the learning center there, and, and I had that position for about a year, and I really enjoyed it. But I kept seeing Martina, you know, playing still when she was in her 40s and then on, in, you know, into her early 50s, and I thought, you know, why not? So I, it kind of, she kind of inspired me to get to get back playing. So, And I wanted to really see, you know, what this, the modern game of tennis was all about. I had two goals uh, by starting back was to see what the modern game was about and to win another doubles title. And so I was able to do both of those things. So it was it was an interesting interesting experience for me. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Con- congratulations on that. And, and uh, I, in reading some of your bio material, I, something uh, came across that really intrigues me, and that is the fact that you were the mental training consultant for the Harvard women's tennis team. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a bit on, on what your duties were and, and, your, and some of your results. Well, um, the coach invited me, you know, or, or asked me to come and, and work work with the team, and I think I was just instrumental with with helping him kind of um, handle, the, handle the young ladies and, and kind of get them to work more as a team and you know, worked a bit on the mental mental part of the game with them. It was, I think, it was just over um, a semester long that I worked with them, and I think that's the best they had done uh, nationally. So I was happy with the results, and I, I enjoyed my time there. That's really good. It's really good. I'm glad they enjoyed your time there as well. That's why I did well after getting some kind of mental training under their belt. Um, so staying on the mental training side. Can you talk a little bit about the, the books that you've written, especially Grand Slam, Coach Your Mind to Win in Sports, Business, and Life? Yeah, um, that was a book I wrote after I came off the tour. Um, I think I just played about a year, so about 2006. And it was just, it's just really a, a compilation of, of some things I learned when I went back out and played on the tour and also just some, some changes I had made uh, you know, as I'd matured. I think we all learned. Um, a lot more about ourselves. I mean, after after being on the tour for 14 years, and then you know, I went back and got my PhD, and um, just my experiences and kind of how how to help uh, bosses be better bosses and teammates be better teammates, and just it's really about achieving excellence and and how you interact with people and being the best you can be. Yes. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about my other book. It's uh, the Mach 4 Mental Training System. And that it's a mental training system that came about from me, you know, going back on the tour when I was 46. And uh, Beverly oh, involved yes. and I, yeah, came up with, with that. And it's it's basically there's four parts to it. It's it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy because I think a lot of a lot of people – um, don't do enough with, with mental training. I mean, you know, they've got great forehands and backhands and in good shape, but they can't control their emotions. And ultimately, if you can't control your emotions, <clears throat> it doesn't matter how good your forehand is because it'll quickly go down the drain, if, you know, like I said, if you can't handle stress or anxiety and, and manage your emotions when you're playing. Um, there's four parts right. to it. Body language is is critical, and then mindset or the mental part. Cueing language, and that is just words or phrases you can say to yourself to either reset emotionally or to have a cue for your forehand, backhand, you know, all your strokes. 
so that when you're out there, you're focused on something productive rather than uh, being angry, upset, you know, thinking about the last game you lost or whatever it was. And then intensity level, uh, which is basically how hard you're swinging at the ball and it's on a scale from one to five. Because what I, what I realize, and I mean, you can see it now as well, and, and if you go watch juniors play and, and sometimes in the pros, is that their intensity level or how hard they're hitting the ball, it lots of times if they're serving for the set or the game, they slow their hand down on their serve or their ground strokes, and it allows the opponent then to to, to get back into the match and uh, cause a problem. So, and, and these are four things that we can all control. So I've, I've had some right. good success with, with working with some juniors on that. And so you developed this from, A, you got your Ph.D., but also from personal experiences as far as what you felt playing on the tour? Yes. Um, I never had anyone work with me on kind of the mindset and the, and the mental part of the game. Um, and as a psychologist, you know, it kind of it really fit. I'd always been interested in psychology, and I think when I was a teenager, I knew I eventually wanted to be a psychologist. So um, it kind of, you know, worked well not only from my experience on the tour but also my educational background and training. Right, right. Uh, it, it's wonderful to hear that you've uh, you've taken your your life lessons, your lessons on the court, and your interests therein, and, and gotten them into books uh, so so people can learn from that. I, I'm uh, very grateful for your efforts on 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 that, and uh, thanks for sharing a little bit more about your other books as well. And um, speaking, keep in mind with the uh, with the coaching perspective. I know you spent some time coaching the Boston Lobsters in World Team Tennis. Uh, hoping you can talk a little bit about that time. Yes, I I played again. I played for the Lobsters when I was uh, 19 years old, and Martina played on the team. And then uh, Bahar, who is the owner of the Lobsters currently, um, asked me to to coach the Lobsters. So I coached them for three years, and Martina um, was a, one of our marquee players all three years. So um, it was fun to get to coach the team and uh, you know spend some time with her. And I want to tell you a, a story. Um, Martina Hingis played for the New York Sport Times, and she is named after Martina Navratilova, but they had never played against each other. So uh, we had a match against the Sport Times at uh, the Harvard uh, Arena, and ESPN was there and Mary Carrillo was there. And uh, so Martina was playing against Hingis, and Hingis was running her, as I say, like a dog from side to side. And Hingis got up free love, and Martina said, you know, motioned me out and said, Ann, you know, come here. And so I'm thinking, oh, boy, what, you know, what's she going to ask me? And she said, I don't know what to do. What should I do? I'm getting killed. And all I could think of was, you're Martina Navratilova. You've won 59 Grand Slam titles, and you don't know what to do? You know? <laughs> so I, I think it gives us all hope, right, if – if Martina doesn't know what to do, that we shouldn't expect, you know, the, the players that we coach, the juniors that we coach, and even ourselves, you know, to always have all the answers. And I was also impressed because this is a person who's been probably is one of the best players in history, uh, most successful, and she's still able to say, you know, what can I do? So 
she's open to feedback and, and wanting to listen. And uh, I think champions listen and they ask for help. Right. So nice. It, and it goes to show you that you know the kids that I teach, the players that I teach, even pros that are coming up on the ITF, uh, you never stop learning. You always keep working on your game, and you've got to ask for help when you think you need it. Right, and I, you know, I've I've worked with uh, juniors, and lots of times I find that um, you know they don't want to listen or they don't want help, and and they're just never going to achieve if if you are not willing to listen um, and be open and and take feedback, uh, constructive criticism, etc. Then you're you're not going to be a champion. I mean, I you right. know I think. I think, uh, you know, like Andy Murray, finally, you know, he, he got with Yvonne Lindell uh, and was, was finally able to make some changes and, and make some mental changes and, and finally win, you know, Wimbledon. So, again, you can be the greatest player in the world, and I think those are the people that, that do listen. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I really love the uh, – uh, I cover Cincinnati every year, Ann, and uh, – you know, I, most of the majority of my questions to the players have to do uh, with with coaching and and uh, the tactics and you know what have you picked up uh, on your on your new uh, with your new coach, et cetera. And obviously, there's been a lot of activity on the men's and women's side with with people bringing people in. And you mentioned probably one of the the best exhibits, if you will, is uh, Murray's success with uh, with Yvonne Lendl. And um, along those lines, you know, you um, congratulations on earning your your doctorate degree. And I was wondering. What prompted you uh, to pursue a doctorate, and also uh, what was your what was your major when you were an undergraduate as well? Well, I, I always wanted to be a psychologist, I think, because I I enjoyed helping people, and um, so I I went to Trinity University right out of high school, and I was there for one year, and I played on the team, and during that year I um, played on the pro tour as an amateur. I played three tournaments. And I came onto the computer at number 30, 31 in the world uh, at the end, by the end of the semester at Trinity. So I thought, you know what, I can always come back to school. I'm going to go ahead and, and play on the tour. And that's what I did. Um, after I was through playing, I, I came back to Trinity and finished my undergraduate, which was a psychology, BA in psychology. Then I attended the school psychology program and the master's program at Trinity for one year as I applied to get in to the doctorate program at the University of Texas at Austin. So when I was accepted there, I went right right to UT and was there. Had five years of coursework, then I had a year of internship, and then to be a licensed psychologist, I had to do a, a year of postdoc. So it's a, a seven-year experience, including dissertation and defending dissertation, et cetera. So it's, it's a long process, but I wanted to be able to get my Ph.D. and be able to practice uh, independently to get a license to do that. Well, great yeah. story. Very Thank you. And congratulations yeah. on your achievement. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, we're, coming up, <laughs> we're coming up on a break. Uh, more with Dr. Ann Smith after the torch. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke summer sound effects on you? Yes. Cool. You okay with this? And this. And what about this? 
you there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Oh, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. Hi, this is Jeff Saldenstein. Hi, this is Ken DeHart. Hi, this is Dick Gould. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to The Coach's Corner on Pro 10 Radio Network. I'm Ann Smith. Welcome to the Mach 4 Minute. Champions find a way to win even when they're not playing their best. I remember when I played on the tour, I may have felt really good about my game and felt like all my shots were working about four or five matches per year. Yes, that's per year. A player can't always feel the ball or be comfortable with every shot all of the time. Players have to find a way to win, no matter how they are feeling or playing on a given day. When a player thinks their strokes always have to feel great for them to win, then they will be frustrated, discouraged, and irritated about their game more often than not. Find a way to win, even when things are not going your way. Stay determined and give your best effort no matter what. That is the true mark of a champion. All right, and welcome back to the Coach's Corner. That was Dr. Ann Smith giving the one-minute tip that we kind of sold off for a website. Uh, and the mm-hmm. website, I think, is uh, annsmithtennis.com. Is that right, Dr. Smith? That's right, annsmithtennis.com. There you go. And so we're talking with Dr. Ann Smith. And, you know, we had a, a tweet question come in while we were on break, and that, that commercial break and the, the lead-in was perfect for this next question. It says, uh, uh, player name is Boyana. And it says, uh, I'm a perfectionist. How can I control getting angry when I make mistakes in practice? What would you recommend for her? (laughs) 
Well, I'll have to tell her that I'm a recovering perfectionist. So, <laughs> right, I, you know, I'm always having to, uh, I catch myself even now, and, I'm, you know, I'm almost 55. So uh, there's hope for you. Um, what I like to tell players with the perfectionism is, first of all, how's it working for you? Uh, and most of the time, right. it doesn't. It doesn't work. So, what I suggest you do is, again, if we look at the four components of the Mach Four, it's important. If when she misses a shot, there's three things I like to tell players to do after a miss. And the and the first is to reset emotionally. Um, whether you you know say something silently to yourself or make you know maybe a small little you know dead gummit or something, but it's only about two or three seconds. And then the second thing, you need to make the correction. So if you've hit your approach shot cross court and come to net and got past, then the correction is, well, I need next time I get that approach shot, I'm going to hit it down the line and cover the line. And the third thing is to plan the next point. So if you're serving, where are you going to serve? If you're returning, where are you going to hit your return? So if you do those three things in between points, you don't have time to be you know, getting upset and, and angry about the last point. So it's but you just really have to reset and say it's okay and move on. But you have to practice okay. it. You have to practice it in practice every single time you step out on the court so that when you get in a match, it becomes more second nature. There you go. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Yeah. Let's see here. Uh, the next question is from the coaching point of view. Is there anything that the coach, as, as, as working with a player, you, you, and uh, you see the player getting frustrated, and sometimes they don't want to hear anything, but sometimes as a coach you need to give them that instruction. Is there something the coaches can say or do to, to help the player uh, get out of that frustrated mode they're in so they can actually open up to, to, to learning the stroke or whatever it is trying, uh, we're trying to teach them at the time? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the relationship uh, between the coach and the player is is very you know is very important, and um, I don't agree with being harsh and and judgmental and critical and all that yelling at players and that type of stuff. I mean that uh, that just creates players who are going to let you down in the end. So it's more about um, approaching the player and asking them questions you know, and, and kind of getting them to think about things. Because I think as coaches, most coaches, uh, I know they talk too much. And yeah. the player, most of the players don't have the attention span. They're not going to be listening. So after about 10 seconds, you know, they might be shutting you out. So I think coaches need to ask more questions and listen. And then once, once you ask a question to get the response from the player, you know, then you can have some type of dialogue. So it can't just be the coach constantly telling the player what to do. It's got to be a two-way communication. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who wants to always, someone always telling them, you know, you're doing this wrong, you need to do this, you need to do that. I mean, that just leads to discouragement. So I think it's important right. for coaches to engage the player, ask them questions, and then figure it out. Very good. Thank you. Good advice, yes. And Dr. Ann, you, you talked a little bit about uh, going to Wimbledon as a, as a youngster. I was wondering when you were growing up, what players were your favorites uh, to follow and watch growing up and, and why, why that was the case? 
I think I probably liked uh, Billie Jean the most, and probably because, you know, she's just a good athlete, and uh, I remember watching when she played against Bobby Riggs, and um, I remember exactly where I was in the family uh kind of garden area or whatever, we were watching her play. So I think it has to be Billie Jean King. Perfect. I don't think I really, um, uh, I always wanted to be, you know, a pro and, and reach that level. So I think she was probably my only one. I don't, I don't remember uh, following too many others. That that's definitely a good one to follow for sure. Um, so we got another question here on Twitter. This is from Tennis Mom Texas, so somewhere in your neighborhood. And she asks, okay. if we don't live in Dallas, are you still able to help uh, a player out either via uh, email, or phone, or Skype? Do we have anything like that set up for clients like that? Good question, Tennis Mom Texas. Um, mm-hmm. I do a limited number of Skype sessions. So uh, she'd like to contact me if you just go to amsthetennis.com, my website, you can uh, send me an email and then we can can communicate that way. I help a couple of, of children and it's been kind of, uh, they're kind of long-term, you know, have good relationships. And um, I think a lot of feedback I get from the parents is, is not only are the children developing on the court, they're also developing, you know, as as children and as people. Um, so I think that's really what's important too. Yes, yes, thank you. Very good. See any more questions coming up? No? Pete, you have something for Dr. Smith? I do, uh, Dr. Ann. Uh, we talked about uh, your favorite players, namely Billie Jean, but you, you played a lot of matches. One... Um, won major titles in, in doubles, uh, uh, ladies' doubles as well as mixed. And I was wondering if uh, any particular matches stand out more than others and uh, what were they, who, who who was your partner at that time and who were your opponents and, and where was the location? Um, I'd probably say my, my first Wimbledon title was in 1980. Kathy Jordan and I um, beat Rosie Casals and Wendy Turnbull. In the finals, it was in three sets. And actually, I'd forgotten who we played in the semis until I looked at a, a draw. Carol Newsom was a, a photographer who followed the tour for a long time, and she had made a kind of a collage for me, and on the collage was the draw. And when I looked at who we played in the semifinals, I couldn't believe I forgot we'd beaten them. We beat Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King in the semis. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, and then uh, and then we beat Rosie and Wendy in the finals. So that's probably you know my first Wimbledon title was probably my most memorable. And my probably my most memorable singles was I was I think about 19 years old and it was I was playing at Eastbourne against Chris Everett and um, I had match point and she hit let's see I hit a winner. And we were we're just about to the net to shake hands, and the chair umpire says, "Oh no, 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 that ball was out." So huh. he overruled he overruled the linesman, so it went from my match 
to uh, having to continue to play, and I think uh, that pretty much <laughs> sent me you yeah. know, down down the tubes with that. So I remember that really. You know, I look back on that, and I think, well, you know, I, I mean, I was pretty good in singles. I was number eleven in the world in singles, so mm-hmm. it's not bad because I'm, you know, I'm known as more of a doubles than a mixed doubles player, but. I was also a good singles player, and, and I think, you know, how my career might have been different in singles uh, mm-hmm. if that hadn't hadn't have happened. So, Was that a, a turning point in your singles career? Because actually I think I remember watching that match on TV. I can't remember if that was the one, but it sounds very familiar. Well, was that a turning point for you? I don't I think it was too early in my career to be, you know, what I would consider a turning point because I had just started. You know, I just started okay. out playing. I think I was only, you know, 19 or 20 in uh, Eastbourne. I always enjoyed playing in Eastbourne. They really had great courts. Um, enjoyed going down there. It was a nice town and, and everything. So, but, I, you know, I, I think I was in a funk after that match for quite some mm. time. Yeah. Mm. If you hey, were... Uh, uh, if you were uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, go, Alex. Go. No, no go ahead. No, uh, Doctor Ann, if you were um, commissioner, let's say, of the WTA, uh, would would you, would you make any rule changes with respect to how the game is played today? And uh, if, if so, what would those be? Oh, good grief! I don't know. That's yeah. <laughs> that's a tough question, Pete. Sure. Um, I you know I don't really know about that. I I follow the game. I I'm a I'm in private practice now, so I spend yes. a lot of my time, um, you know, working with, with people who have uh, – it's a clinical practice, so I spend a lot of time working with people who have anxiety and depression and all sorts of things. And I watch tennis from time to time. Um, I haven't watched the, the French Open at all. But uh, to tell you the truth, I don't really know – I don't know what it would be if there needs to be a change. Well, look, I don't like all the medical timeout kind of stuff. I know that. Oh, oh. Along those lines, what, what's your opinion then on, uh, on on court coaching that the WTA has implemented not too long ago? I think you know I think it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. I think they probably just do it to to give a wrinkle to the game, so to speak. I don't know if it really impacts or makes that big of a difference, um, but I would think it'd be a little. Um, you know, you'd have to have money to have a coach. You know, someone right. who travels with you to be able to get coaching. So, I wouldn't think some of the players uh, who couldn't afford coaches to be with them full time. You know, that would be they wouldn't have that benefit. So, I think it would be mm-hmm. a discrepancy there between those who can, you know, travel and have a coach with them and those who can't. Sure. Very good. Very good. And we just got one more uh, question here on Twitter. Uh, it asks. Is it true that you can use being nervous to your advantage? Hmm. Well, I always like to look at ner- being nervous or anxious. Um, you know, if you think of it more as excitement <laughs> instead of, oh, my gosh, I'm nervous uh, and all that kind of stuff, I think we all need a little bit of nerves to play well and to be alert and to be focused. But when the anxiety or the nerves get too high, then that becomes a problem because we don't think as clearly, we don't move as well, we don't hit the ball as well if we're too nervous. So, uh, again, I think it's a perception and how you're going to look at your matches. I mean, I, I 
I know I had nerves, but, you know, I'm on the anxiety spectrum, so I have some anxiety as well. And, some, you know, it's been helpful to me. Um, but I'm very competitive and, and you know, I, I've pushed myself to do well. But there, there are times, I think, when people get way too nervous, way too anxious, and then they don't play as well. Especially if you're thinking right. about winning and losing before you go on the court, you know, that's kind of the, the kiss of death. Instead of thinking about winning and losing, you need to be thinking about, okay, what's my game plan? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to play? How will I uh, exploit my opponent's weaknesses? Um, I'm going to have strong body language. I'm going to make sure I'm predominantly positive. I mean, if you, if you think about those things before you play your matches, then you shouldn't, shouldn't be as nervous. But if you're way too nervous before your play, um, it's usually you need to pay attention to what you're saying to yourself because you're, you're probably telling yourself, what if I don't win? What are people going to think? Those types of things because our thoughts, that's what makes us nervous. So you would want to change the way you think about your match so that you won't be quite as nervous. All right, and there you have it. Good. Uh, Pete, we have time for one more question for Dr. Smith. What do you got? Sure, Dr. Ann. Just uh, maybe if you could share uh, something about, uh, I think it's very intriguing that, uh, you know, you got to play uh, not only with but against uh, two of the greatest ever in Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. Any, anything you can share with us and our listeners maybe that we might not know about uh, about either either woman? Well, uh I thought Billie Jean was my favorite partner. I loved playing with her. Uh, we got along well, um, you know, both very competitive. And I remember, of course, I enjoyed playing with Martina as well. And I I remember with Martina, we were playing a match in Chicago. I think it was Virginia Slims of Chicago at the time. And uh, I don't remember who we were playing, but, you know, she really just said, Anne, you know, come on, we need to go for it. We've got to be aggressive. And so that's how champions think. You know, that's how Billie Jean thought. That's how Martina Navratilova thought. You know, there was no holding back with them. They're more like, you know, let's be aggressive, let's go for it, go for your shot. So um, I think that's what made them so good. Because most people, the tendency is to pull back, you know, when, it, mm-hmm. when the match is on the line or whatever. But she's just like, come on, let's go. Let's, you know, hit away, be aggressive. And, um, you know, I, I remember that from her, and I think that's, that's why she was so successful. Thank you for sharing that. great. <clears throat> Absolutely. And time is just flying by this evening. We're at the end of our time. Uh, Dr. Ann Smith, we want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing everything. Uh, any last words for, for our listeners this evening? Um. Work on the mental part of your game. Yeah, whoever's listening. I mean, it's a, it's a very important uh, part of the game, and it can make you a better player pretty much right away. Awesome. She is 10-time Grand Slam doubles champion, Dr. Ann Smith. You can reach her at annsmithtennis.com. She has the Mach 4 uh, training system located in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to having you again next time. Well, thank you so much, Alex and Pete. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Connie. Have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Good night. That was Dr. Ann Smith. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Vic Brayton. Don't go anywhere. You know how fast you were.
Grandson, call me Ed. Do you know how fast you were going, Ed? You mean exactly? Yes, exactly. No, not exactly. How fast? Fast. Fast, sir? You were going very fast. Fast is my job, officer. Fast is your job? Yes, sir. What kind of job? I deliver, sir. What do you deliver? The world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. I thought Jimmy John's had the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. Jimmy John's does have the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. So you deliver for Jimmy John's? I deliver for Jimmy John's. So do you always deliver fast? I always deliver fast. How fast? I deliver subs so fast you freak. It's not smart to freak a cop, son. You didn't order Jimmy John's sub, sir. So if I did order a Jimmy John's sub, when would I get it? Now. What if I don't want it now? Then call later. Or I can pick it up myself. Or you can pick it up yourself. Because I'm pretty fast, too. I'm sure you are, sir. Very fast. I believe you, sir. Faster than you. No way, sir. Way faster. In your dreams. You dissing me, son. No, sir. I'm polite. Fast and polite. Very polite and very, very fast. Is that a challenge, son? No, sir. It's a fact. Let's burn rubber, kid. It wouldn't be fair. Why not? You've got a fully blown V8 Camaro with splits and headers. So? I've got a 10-speed bike. I'll let you off with a warning. <laughs> they try and make it seem like they want to protect kids from smoking. But in reality, they've been targeting children for decades. They used to make and sponsor cartoons to market cigarettes. But despite these shows being popular among children, they claimed that these cartoons were for an adult audience. Then they paid movies to feature their brands. Some of your favorite superhero movies have characters that the industry actually paid to smoke on screen. One industry exec said that, We must continue to exploit new opportunities to get cigarettes on screen and into the hands of smokers. And now they carefully place posters and other ads at convenience stores and push new products that look and taste just like candy. Who eats candy and sees ads that are three feet off the ground? Come on. So you want to know why I'm tobacco-free? Because I don't want their marketing to reach my little sister. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think, dot com. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. And participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is Johan Crick, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. And we are back. Welcome back to the Coach's Corner, presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Uh, we have another guest this evening. My next guest is an icon in tennis. Needs very little introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm so excited to have him on the show. He has seven tennis books, 21 VHS and DVDs in tennis and other sports. In the, in this, in the TV sports announcements, he's been on PBS, NBC, CBS, uh, ESPN, and Prime Ticket. He had television series on PBS, Vicks, something's going on there, uh, Vicks, Fate, and Lot, Tennis for the Future, ESPN Future Sport. He's appeared on Hollywood Squares, NBC Today Show, 
ABC Good Morning America, ABC Nightline, and ABC Evening News and 2020. He's been featured in Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, The New York Times, and LA Times. Vic Braden, so good to have you on the show. How are you this evening? <clears throat> yeah, just fine. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. I, I love listening to Anne. Oh, yes. She was great. She was great. <clears throat> you so, Vic, um, we, 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 we touched base uh, earlier last week uh, trying to get you on the show, and I, I got to learn a lot more. I'd love to spend you know, a couple of hours talking to you about your history and tennis and everything you've done, and we can just talk for hours about everything you're doing. But the main thing right now I want to focus on is what's going on right now. You have a foundation that you started to help kids. I want our listeners to, to really hear it from you and what you're doing, and just tell us a story how it started and where you guys are at right now. Okay. Uh, I was giving tennis clinics around the world after the uh, tennis college life, and uh, I ran into the mayor of Santa Ana, Mayor Miguel Polito, who said that uh, if you will quit uh, your global tours, um, I would like to have you work with uh, kids from lower income levels who uh, uh, can't pay for lessons in tennis camps and so on. Well, that appeals to me, having come from a relatively uh, middle class, lower middle class family. And so, anyway, uh, we started it, and that was in 2007 and 2008. Uh, he, oh, first, the mayor said that he felt he had enough grants in the closet to last uh, 10 years, pay my salary, and it lasted one year. But uh, I was the program was going so well. I was teaching young kids to be tennis coaches. They even had nine-year-olds coaching adults. And we even gave them neuroscientific data. So, excuse me. So anyway, the, uh, it ran out when the recession hit, and then I didn't want to give up the program, so I ended up putting most of our family savings starting in 2008 into this project, and uh, it's really done well. But along the way, uh, we were working with several, uh, over 150 coaches, and uh, the, uh, the data came out that Hispanic children were number one in incidence of diabetes and obesity. And uh, having been a diabetic myself, Having lost an eye, uh, I really wanted to help those young Hispanic children in elementary school. So I started junior medical ambassadors, and the other is junior tennis ambassadors. And uh, the junior medical ambassadors, we picked in one school for a pilot program, Henninger Elementary in Santa Ana, and the goal was to uh, have a pilot program that we could record every session look at the success, and then make a DVD for elementary schools around the country because the problem is serious. And I found the number one thing was I couldn't convince people it was serious. But we have people losing legs, arms, vision, totally blind, just from diabetes. And so uh, I decided I was really going to go after it. I wasn't going to let it go. But now we're down to the wire because... I've used almost all our family savings, and uh, the program is still running very well. As a matter of fact, I was with the school principal this morning uh, filming uh, very early on some 
core curriculum ideas uh, for tennis and, and diabetes uh, prevention. And it worked out well. So I got Dr. John Martinez, a very prominent surgeon and a dermatologist here in uh, Orange County, California. And he would present the medical side. And we got a nutritionist, Linda Giampaolo, whose husband is a tennis coach, uh, who's a nutritionist. And she would talk about the food uh, uh, business. So anyway, it, it worked very well. And these are young kids who profess uh, to have for an interest in being adult doctors and in joining the adult medical field. So they were only fifth and sixth graders. And uh, it's turned out very well. They even go to the food cart and warn kids about what can happen. Uh, some of them have helped their own family members. And then they go into every classroom in the elementary school and talk about prevention. And people say, why are you starting so early? And I was a school psychologist. And for me, uh, and I also, to be a school psychologist, I had to have three years elementary school teaching experience. So I've realized how smart young kids are. And people very often say, well, they're not that smart. And why do we ask them to fix our iPhone and our computers and things? <laughs> they're very smart. So anyway, uh, it's turned out to be a great program. And the only weakness is me. Uh, I, I was not able to uh, get all the grants that were promised. Some nice people uh, helped out, but it wasn't uh, half as much. We figured that uh, to do the whole city of Santa Ana, I needed at least $200,000 to buy nets, uh, balls, rackets, and uh, we teach uh, those kids, the obese kids and the diabetic kids, plus any others, uh, right on the asphalt. We lay out a court, and uh, they, they use the regular uh, little net, and it works out very well. So I'm very happy. Uh, and we have a neuroscientific uh, side to this thing, too, and I have mentors in that. And uh, we were at one of the schools, and the adult coach said uh, to this little nine-year-old who was coaching, which bothered him, he said, if you're so smart, when should you start moving forward uh, at the net? And the kid said, when they fire the synapse. And the adult <laughs> coach said, what the heck is the synapse? And uh, he was so embarrassed, he went to the back of the room. So the little kids <laughs> are great coaches, and then they... People told me that kids won't listen to kids. So I did an ambient sound thing in the room. When the adult teacher was teaching, there was more no ambient noise than when the student was teaching. So it turned out very well, and I just hope that I can keep the program going and, and there's some angels out there who really want to help. That's, yes. that's uh, wonderful stories to hear, Vic. Uh, congratulations on all of your efforts to date, and I certainly do hope that uh, for the sake of uh, of a lot of people that uh, that you're able to keep it going. And you mentioned uh, fifth and sixth graders, uh, and I love the titles, uh, a junior medical ambassador and a junior tennis ambassador. I was wondering, Vic, uh, can you talk a little bit about the responsibilities of um, of uh, of one of the junior medical ambassadors and junior tennis ambassadors? What exactly are they responsible for when they when they sign up for that commitment? Well, they they have to. We normally had about one class a week with a doctor who volunteered his time, cared about diabetes, and he's a tennis player too. And uh, 
And so we started, uh, uh, and we've worked a year and a half with them, and their job is to go into the classroom, and each will present uh, some phase of diet uh, or diabetic prevention, obesity prevention. And uh, we had to actually even train them to look into the camera and into the students' eyes because they like to read from the paper. So the, the principal told me that they, one of the best things that happened is the kids learned to be actors to speak directly to the students and uh, to have a lot of empathy. And uh, it's worked out very, very well. Mm -hmm. Nice. And that is and great. By the way, that is great. Uh, by the way, yeah, Alex, they're, they're called Dr. Uh, Dr. Jim, Dr. Priscilla, and they're only 11 and 10. And, uh, and the tennis coaches are called Coach. So we we have uh, a rule that they've got to call a person coach in tennis, and they've got to call the junior, the junior doctor doctor. I bet that really makes them feel special and important, and and their their responsibility of having to give that information, whether you're teaching tennis or you're teaching nutrition and medical stuff, you feel that sense of responsibility because now they're calling you doctor, Doctor Lawrence or Doctor Alex or Doctor Pete, bro, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's that's the case. Uh, the, our doctor, Dr. Martinez, says you don't want to look stupid if you're a doctor, so have the answers. Have the answers, absolutely, yes. Uh, I was going to ask you, um, there's a lot of stuff going around now in the media as far as school lunches and what they're actually feeding these kids. Is any part of your program addressing uh, the school lunch Thing with, with, uh, yes, uh, with the school? We go right down the line what the school lunches give and also what the food carts uh, give out after school and on the street. And uh, our nutritionist brings examples every time of what's good and what's bad, what's good fat, what's bad fat, uh, carbohydrates, and the kids, and we go down the list and they're very quick to respond now to to uh, labeling food. That is great. Definitely needed. Good to know. I I, I like, uh, Vic, going back to uh, how you closed the last question where the fifth and sixth grader is addressed as, as doctor and coach. That's uh, that's nice. That uh, shows responsibility on, on the individual that, uh, you know, that is part of this program and, and, you know, equal respect with respect to their classmates. And um, if you could talk about some of your reach and expansion right now, you, t you mentioned uh, Santa Ana, uh, you know, Santa Ana School District. Is, is, uh, is your program um, elsewhere in the surrounding area in Orange County as well? Well, not this pilot program. Uh, the, the tennis coaches we did in over 10 schools in, in three different counties. But now that we're doing... Uh, the uh, pilot program for uh, for a DVD that's going to go to all the different schools, elementary schools that want it in the country. Uh, the uh, uh, we we uh, have focused primarily on that Hispanic community because they're number one in incidence uh, of, of obesity and diabetes. The African Americans were number two, and we, we I try to stay close to them, too. I'm on the inclusion uh, uh, committee and diversity and inclusion 
for the Southern Cal Tennis Association. We just try to get everybody in, in there who wants to. But right now our pilot program is with the kids who are most susceptible. That is great. <clears throat> that is great. And Vic, do do the parents have any involvement in any of these programs with the kids? Oh yeah. We at the parents' meeting, uh, our students will make a presentation. But we have asked them when they go home, give all the data to their parents. And and to this date, they tell me they have. Uh, two or three of them uh, have told me that their parents have totally changed the menu. That is awesome. So it's transferring over from what they're learning in school and the program over to their house and hopefully spreading uh, throughout the family. You bet. You bet. Well, that's the goal. In the PTA meetings, uh, we are having the kids speak to parents. And uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> when the kids show how important it is, you know, and when they find out that People, as they get older and their nutritional uh, habits are bad, they could lose a leg, lose an arm, lose their vision. Boy, that that can scare you pretty good. Yes, absolutely. Vic, uh, can you uh, talk about, you, you know, you mentioned needing funds for, for quite a bit, uh, including tennis equipment. Can you elaborate a little on, on how the, uh, on what the, uh, the junior tennis ambassadors do and, and their role as coaches. Right. They, the junior tennis uh, ambassadors, the junior coaches, uh, they have an obligation to uh, we help identify obese children and any kids with diabetes and uh, because exercise is such an important component uh, in prevention. And uh, we, we give them the first shot at learning tennis. And in the Hispanic community, the, the students primarily focus on soccer, and so this is a whole new ball game for them. The, the the young tennis coaches set up tennis nets and start with their students, and the students are identified before the PE session, and uh, they know exactly where to go and and what to do. And we'll see what happens to some of these kids uh, that uh, want to be coaches. I'm hoping they'll remain. Uh, coaches in their, some of their adult life because they're really very sensitive to uh, some of the kids' needs. And the kids really respect them, absolutely. That is great. Vic, can you give our listeners uh, the website information, where they can get more information about the program? I think it's tennisambassadors.com, is that correct? Well, no, I think the best thing for people to do if they have an interest in helping it, it, my email address is, and I answer all of them, it's just my name, Vic Braden, at VicBraden.com. It's V-I-C-B-R-A-D-E-N, at V-I-C-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. So just my name, send me an email. I'll give you all the data that you need, and uh, and I'll also tell you the, the uh, different uh, uh, links to work on the get some data. And just so everybody knows, we are going to put a lot of this information on the ProTenRadio.com website along with uh, some videos that Vic had sent over. And we're starting a campaign here at Protein Radio to help raise money uh, through a crowdfunding site. We may do some auctions, uh, items of, of autographed uh, memorabilia. 
And so we're really jumping on board, and, and we hope people out there can also jump on board and help out this great cause. Um, Vic, uh, just to close out before we, before we finish up, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you've been doing this for quite a while, though, basically on your own nickel. How many years have you been doing this on your own dime? Uh, since 2008. Uh, the, I wow. guess uh, I, we've raised about 30% of, of what we needed, and we were stuck with the rest. And you were stuck with the rest, and you just kept it going, and now it's just crunch time, and it's time to uh, to have uh, yeah, it's out of other time to, you know, angels step up. Boy, the, yes. uh, I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Uh, we, we've, we've just been racking our brain, and the biggest problem is I haven't been able, as a matter of fact, I was talking to uh, Elizabeth um, uh, Prophet. She's trying to get on the pro tour. And she's a type 1 diabetic, right. has to carry the pack with her what she plays. But she's trying to get on the pro tour. And, uh, but what she goes through, uh, in, in the middle of a match, the blood sugar gets, starts getting too low uh, or too high, whatever. But she has to stop. There's just a lot of kids suffering. And by the way, I should mention, I'm also on the board of the Arthritis National Research Foundation, and we help young researchers. And our president raises the money, so it's not me. I'm not good enough. But I'm working uh, towards helping juniors, junior tennis players who have arthritis. There are 300,000 young children with juvenile arthritis. And so oh my uh, I, I'm just hoping before I check out of this globe that uh, I can really help some of these kids with arthritis. But... Uh, I, it's very interesting. I was listening to Ann. Uh, you know, when I was a sixth grade teacher, uh, I wanted to find out uh, what I taught them that was meaningful in their adult life. Fifty-five years later than the class, I brought them back for a reunion. And they, we had 110 students there from all over the globe because we did a lot of very interesting things. But they, I just have so much faith in young people changing everything. And with the diabetes, if we can get elementary schools, that's where it belongs. And in high school, the, the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the habits are too great, you know, just too great to, uh, for a lot of kids to break. But if they start in elementary school, I think we'll lick diabetes. I hope so. And and thank Thank you for everything you're doing. And, and, you know, you've done so many things in tennis and, and things around the world in the Vic Braden Tennis College. And for you to jump in uh, to do this, uh, it's just uh, we're grateful for you and, and for your passion to help these kids out. Well, it's really nice you to say that, Alex. But I, I'm not going to feel good until I run into some people who uh, can afford to help me out a little bit. I'm not asking people to make major, major sacrifices, but if there are people who can afford it, we'll we'll take any kind of help we can get because uh, right now we're we're very close to, uh, I don't even have enough to finish the video for the uh, school, elementary schools, excuse me, around the country. So anyway, if they'll send me an email, they'll certainly get an email back from me. Uh, And uh, and if you put uh, down the uh, something so it doesn't go into junk mail, uh, some title. 
I would really appreciate it because I found some very, very important messages in junk mail. And I, and so yeah. I'm starting to watch for that. Yeah, they can slip in there. Yeah, Vic, you, you, uh, I know you've got, uh, you know, hours, hundreds of hours of, of videotape from back in the day. Can you share a little bit about, you know, some of your favorite experiences uh, and, and encounters with, with tennis personalities and players that we all know? Yeah, if you if you go on YouTube and look at Vic's vault, you'll see a fun one I did with Arthur Ashe, and uh, it's on there right now. And I'm trying to use that as a teaser to uh, see if I can do Vic's vault and raise money for the diabetic program and for the arthritis program. But uh, the uh, you know I, I started with Jack Kramer in uh, uh, in '58. I was a school psychologist in Hermosa Beach, California, and I left that to join Jack Kramer. And uh, there we had Segura and Gonzalez and Kramer and so on. And then following up with all the Aussies, Rose Wall and so on, and uh, uh, Laver. And, but one of the interesting things that very few people know is that uh, when I went to, uh, for my third group, uh, uh, George McCall, World uh, National Tennis League, uh, we got one day in 19, late 67, we got a, a telegram saying, uh, be at such and such a place for the U.S. Open. And George McCall got very defensive, very angry, and he said, we're not going. Well, we had Gonzalez, Laver, Rosewall, Roy Emerson, Billie Jean King. We had all the players. And so when I was running the tournament, oh, excuse me, uh, we were... We were running a tournament in in uh, uh, Great Britain, and Philippe Chatrier said, "Vic, get over here fast." And I did. I, I he said, "We we got a problem because the top players aren't even going to play in the first open, and very few people know about this." And uh, so I went to Paris, met in the back room, and then he said, "Be it and, and out at the curb at seven in the morning. We're going to Robert of Desolin's office." And, and Jean Barotra, the famous Jean Barotra, will be there, and he will apologize to you. And I said, well, he doesn't know me. He just needs to apologize for his treatment to George McCall. He said, no. So anyway, we go, and, and in he walks at 7 in the morning. He had been working with Prince Renier and Grace Kelly, and, uh, and he uh, uh, came into the room, and he, he's trying to point out, having people point out who I am and where I am, and he got in front of me and said, I apologize. And uh, that was how the, we got our players to the French Open. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, got together with Jean Barotra. Very few people know it. We, our, our players won every event except, and were runner-up except women's singles. Nancy Ritchie won the singles, but we won the other events and, uh, in 1968. So it's a story that's not, not known by many people except your people, uh, but it's an interesting uh, uh, side. you got to treat everybody with dignity. Yes, yes absolutely. Vic, thank you so much for sharing. We're coming up to the end of the segment. We want to thank you so much for all the information and the work you're doing. And like I said, uh, at, at, at the, the Protein family of companies, ProteinRadio.com, Protein Global Sports, and Protein International, we're all going to jump on board and try and do our part to, to uh, raise awareness and, and help you raise some money, and I'll be in touch with Vic. 
please reach him at Vic Braden at VicBraden.com. And Vic, any last words for our listeners before we head off? Yeah, I think I was listening to Ann. It's really important that tennis players stay in the front of the brain because that's where the good decisions are made. I work with a brain imager and uh, and and also a, uh, excuse me, John Dean Doggle in brain typing. He's full-time with Boston Celtics. So we do brain typing and work with Dr. Amen, the, uh, the brain imager. So when I see people, that's why uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about I predicted 16 out of 17 double faults when I could predict a person went from the front of the brain to the back of the brain. That is great. That is great. Again, thank you, Vic, for being on the show. He is Vic Braden, vicbraden.com. Please reach out. Get information on, on proteinradio.com. Vic, thank you so much for being with us tonight, and we'll hopefully have you back on the show with a lot of success stories. I'd be delighted to tell you about the results of this, this session. Great. Thank you, Vic. You have a good night. We'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Vic. You're welcome. That was Vic Braden. Uh, great stuff. And uh, that takes us to the end of the Coach's Corner. And tonight we actually have a double header for you. So please stay tuned. Uh, please know that we're working on the following guests for the next month. Todd Allenbecker, Liesl Hoover is going to be on. Uh, working on Jim Currier, Jimmy Connors, Aaron Christine, and Alistair McCoff. So a lot of good stuff coming up on the show. Uh, please stay tuned for Passing Shots with Pete Zebron and a special guest co-host tonight, Barry Buss. Uh, this has been another edition of the Coach's Corner on the Pro 10 Radio Network. For Dr. Ann Smith, Vic Braden, and Pete Zebron, this is Alex Ramirez signing off. Have a good night. And God bless. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer sound effects on you? Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Ha! Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. Hi, this is Dick Gould. You're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. You are listening to Passing Shots with Pete Zebron on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show.
Welcome to Passing Shots. Pete Zebron with special guest Barry Buss, author of Hiding Behind the Baseline with Bobby Blair and also ATP writer. Welcome to the show, Barry. Hey, Peter. How you doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. A lot going on. Always nice to uh, to talk tennis during the weeks of a major, and obviously uh, we've got five days in the books at uh, at Roland Garros. Want to talk about some of the action on um, on both the men's and the women's side, and and how you see some of these matches, Barry, and uh, some very intriguing matches going up on the, uh, especially on the men's side. I uh, want to get your take on some of them. We're going to lead off first off with uh, Ivo Kovalevich, who had a very impressive uh, win, straight sets win over uh, Grigor Dimitrov. Six foot ten, Ivo Kovalevich taking on six foot eight, Kevin Anderson, who played his college tennis at the University of Illinois and uh, is out of South Africa. Now has U.S. citizenship as well. But um, what do you see in the Kovalevich Anderson match, Barry? Uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting matchup. Probably not the most uh, exciting matchup if for the kind of quality of tennis that uh, we've grown accustomed to really watching. You know, especially late rounds in the majors with uh, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. You know, the more defensive, um, grinding types. Uh, obviously, these guys are huge servers and not very good returners. Uh, they're not the best movers. So probably going to get a lot of uh, pretty quick points. And, uh, you know, if I was a betting man, there'll probably be a couple tiebreakers in there. And, you know, it's just probably a matter of just hold, holds their nerves a little bit better. Um, I mean, Anderson seems to be having a little better campaign this year than uh, than Karlovic. But Karlovic's hot. He had a good win uh, over Dimitrov and another good win, I think, in there too. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a coin toss. If I had to pick somebody, I would take Anderson. I think he's got a little bit more game off the ground and uh, – a little younger, and I think he's, um, you know, I just think he's been having a good run. I think he's probably look for him to get through this match. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, Ivo Karlovic back. He um, he had some health issues and a surgery yeah, in there as well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and uh, I, you know, obviously his ranking dipped all the way to uh, oh about 150 or so, and I think he's up to uh, you know the uh, the high 30s right now. So uh, you know, the winner of that match will get either. Uh, Seppi or most likely David Ferrer. And um, another match we want to talk about that's uh, very, very intriguing. And, uh, boy, a couple of acrobats out there. Uh, Guillermo Fis is, yeah, is going to play uh, Fabio Fognini. And, um, you know, coming in, Fognini, I thought, uh, could be a potential dark horse. Um, he has a very solid start to 2014. Uh, three finals. He won one of them uh, all on clay, actually. But, um you know the uh, the Masters 1000s. He did not perform well. He um, was actually up a set in a break against Songa. Uh, lost the second set and lost the third set. Six Love was was booed off the court. And um, uh, what do you uh, besides uh, you know theatrics and acrobatics? What what do you see uh, Barry and Monfils and Fognini? Well, that's you know that's one of those matches where you know you just you you almost have to tune in and. Uh, you know, they're two of the most, uh, you know, flamboyant and uh, players on the tour that have, they seem to not take themselves so, ter- so seriously. They're out there having a good time. Uh, they're, you know, not afraid to show little motions and have a little fun out there. And so you're going to get, uh, you know, they're not going to sleepwalk their way through this. You're going to get a lot of flair. And uh, both guys seem to be, you know, for Monfils more than anything else, he seems to be very healthy, which has always been a bit of a wild card for him the last few years. And he's had some great runs. In Paris before, he's made it to the semis. Uh, he had a you know great win over Ferrer a couple of years back, and Roddick and other 
big time W. So he can play. He plays well there when he's healthy. You know, you see, I would definitely consider him to be the favorite. On the back end of that, Fognini plays. You know, he comes to play on the clay. He had a great run there a few years ago, made it to the quarters. Um, I think, unfortunately, he had, to, he had a default to Djokovic, if I'm not mistaken. But um, So, yeah, he's not, a, you know, he's not a stranger to playing well in Paris on the red clay. So, you know, you're looking at two guys. Monfils has a little more firepower. Uh, he's bigger, much bigger first serve. So he's going to get in a bigger forehand. My gut uh, tells me Monfils will grind this down, and because Fognini, as you mentioned, has been a little up and down, uh, you know, this uh, this clay court campaign. So, um, yeah, so I would take, I would look for Monfils to advance there. Yeah, and the winner of that match, uh, I'm actually going to go with Fognini, just uh, thinking that he's going to, he's reverting back to form uh, earlier this year, and you know, the winner of that match, Barry, has a, a very winnable match, uh, either uh, Guillermo Garcia Lopez, who had a nice. Uh, upset in the first round, but Guillermo Garmo, uh, Gar- Garcia Lopez or Donald Young, who uh, somehow made it into the third round. So, uh, right. yeah, Monfils Fognini is, is looking good for the next round. And um, next matchup, very um, intriguing one, um, Philip Kohlschreiber, who won a title just on Saturday and uh, in Germany. He's going to play Andy Murray, uh, who... You know, very good clay court player. People forget that Murray can play on the dirt and has had some very good results, not only at Roland Garros, but uh, at some of the Masters 1000s on clay past few years. He obviously is coming back from an injury, but uh, you think Cole Schreiber can uh, can do some damage and make some inroads in Murray's game? Boy, this is a tough one. Um, you know, obviously Murray, more than you know, I don't think Murray's ever, not only has he not won a clay court title, I don't think he's ever made the finals of one. He's made a few semis in, in the larger tournaments. So obviously it's not his, his you know, um, his uh, surface of choice. You know, Cole Schreiber's had some great results. You know, he's a tough one to figure out. He's really solid. I think he straight said a Djokovic here a couple of years ago. Um, so he can, he can rise to the occasion. I just think when you get into the physicality of it, you know, you got a Murray at 6'3", and a Cole, you know, he's a good half a foot taller than Cole Schreiber. He's just got more pop on his game. I think, and he's just got – Murray's got enough panache in his, in, his, in his makeup there to break a guy down. And I just think um, he's just got enough. He's got a little bit more. He seems to have picked up some confidence. In, uh, in the, even though he lost to Nadal in uh, Rome there, that, that was a big-time match. He was right there shot for shot with him, and he got through it, you know, in, in one piece. And, uh, you know, he's a tough guy to bet against. You know, he's, he is still one of the big four, in my opinion, and, and a threat in every event he plays. And, um, you know, obviously he took a little hiccup there with the back surgery and the breakup with Lendl and stuff. But, I, you know, I just think he's a, he's a class ahead of Cole Schreiber there. I, I looked for him to advance fairly comfortably there. Yeah, Cole Schreiber, again, with the one-hand backhand, uh, one of the beauties of the game, like uh, like yeah. Gasquet and, and like uh, Stan. And I, I have the feeling that he can take anybody, kind of like Stan used to be, he can take anybody to a, a breaker or right on the brink of winning, but just in some way, shape, or form against uh, the, the upper echelon of the ATP Tour just right. can't get the job done. Yeah. That said, uh, no. I want to I get your take also, Barry, on um, – you know, the fact that Murray is, is without a coach. You know, uh, tennis, uh, as you well know, you play the point, but uh, Murray especially likes to look to his box for support. Um, Yvonne Lendl's not there. Your thoughts on that are, are even better. Um, who do you think at this point in time would be a good fit for, for Andy Murray in his box? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Uh, actually, I wrote an essay on this um, on my blog on, on what's in a coach back in January when all the celebrity coaches were being hired and when Djokovic brought in Murray, I mean, brought in uh, Becker and, and Federer brought in Edberg. And if you even look to the, the second tier of guys, you know, Rinker brought in Magnus Norman, 
Nishikori's had a great run this year, bringing in Michael Chang, um, and I believe uh, Lubitschek has been in the corner of um, of a Chilik, I believe. I can't remember exactly. Uh, Ronich, 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 right? So he's having a great run. So the guys who didn't, you know, may not have won all the Grand Slams like the Edbergs and Lendl and stuff. Those second tier of of coaches for the you know celebrity coaches, for lack of a better term, uh, are, are really delivering. I mean, these guys are doing doing great, great work. So, um, so what what is, what does Murray need right now? You know, it's just, it's one of the hardest things to understand. What what value do you give a coach? Is it really kind of a placebo effect? I mean, really, when you're in the on the court, you know, and a guy who's experienced as Murray is and major winner and stuff like that, he knows what to do. You know, and he knows how to prepare. He's got his, you know, his mom has probably been his primary coach his whole life, and she's still there. So he still has his support system. Now, does he have Lendl there like he has in the last couple of years when he's had a lot of success? No. Is that going to make a big difference uh, tomorrow and as he advances in the tournament? You know, it's hard to say. Obviously, if he doesn't do well, it's easy to, to, you know, point the finger at that he needs a coach. If he doesn't, you know, if he succeeds, then maybe, you know, then you go the other way with that. So so I, I don't put too much stock in that, especially, um, you know, with where he's at. He's been struggling this year anyway. So I think, um, you know, I think he's going to get through this tournament and probably make a big hire. Looks like he's been interviewing quite a few people and uh, trying to make the right decision to go forward. Um, you know, the next couple of years. So, you know, he'll make a big choice. There's been a lot of rumors out there about who he's going to pick up, and uh, it will be, you know, probably it'll be a big name. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I, uh, a, a few weeks back it was uh, Larry Stefanke, and I, I, I think that would be a really solid selection. But, yeah, I think who, whoever it is going forward, Andy Murray, uh, knows what he's doing, and, and whoever it is will be a big plus for him uh, yeah, in the meantime. Winner. Yeah, there's an interesting Go psychology going on right now. I think it's hard to really assess, assess really the value of that, having that face in the player's box while you're playing those big matches. But the fact that all of these players are making hires like that, they're not doing, you know, everyone is going for the, the Grand Slam champion or the former, you know, one or two in the world-ranked player to have them in the, in the box at, on top of their kind of traditional coach and their hitting partners and their, their family and support system. So it seems to be a trend amongst the top men right now that to have someone of that caliber in the box. So Stefanke would just certainly, obviously he's got the coaching credentials. He's had a lot of success uh, and stuff, but would he, you know, is he going to have that same kind of stature um, that somehow these guys seem to think there's, there's, a, there's some value in having that, that big-time celebrity in their box right now. I wonder if Murray will break from that tradition or, you know, there's only so many of those guys out there anyway um, to choose from. So, yeah, it'd be, it'll be interesting to see what direction he goes here. Yeah, and uh, that said, I mean, you know, Djokovic uh, ending last year on, I don't know, maybe 22, 23, 25-match win streak and then <laughs> – brings Becker into his camp for that, as Djokovic said, that extra 1% or 2% that I was lacking. Wow. Um, yeah, they, and that's, they have and that's all the angles figured out. You know, and if you think about it, you know, Djokovic is no dummy, and he's out there, you know, he lost a couple big matches to Murray, you know, in Australia at the U.S. Open and in Wimbledon finals. Uh, you know, and he's, he knows that Murray's got this Lendl factor up there. And, uh, you know, so these guys, they're not going to let any competitive advantage you know, go go uh, untapped. So if they feel that they're, they're – obviously Djokovic feels that there is some value in having a person like that up there. He feels that Murray had some form of advantage over him, and he wanted to make sure he, he evened that up as best he could. Now, what value is Becker bringing to someone as, you know, as accomplished as Djokovic is? Very hard to say. You know, fortunately, I think Rome was the first tournament he uh, – 
he won that with Becker actually in his box. Um, you know, so it's been an interesting, uh, you know, interesting year so far for those guys. Um, so we'll see. You know, it, it's a t- obviously if they think it is there's value in it, then there's value in it, and it's more of a more of a psychological thing than any kind of t- tactical thing at this point for these guys. True. Yeah. Great. Great commentary, and I thought that was pretty ironic too. Uh, Djokovic off to a good start this year, winning Indian Wells Miami. However, as <laughs> the first tournament he wins with Becker present was was Rome. Uh, interesting right, there. Yeah. Yeah, winner of Murray uh, Kohlschreiber uh, gets Gasquet-Verdasco, pretty intriguing match. But I want to jump to, uh, you know, we talked about Feast Fognini. There's three of those type of matches that uh, you look at both guys matching up and you, you kind of get a smile on your face. And, um, Barry, the next one is uh, Roddick Stepanek playing Ernestus Gouldis. What what a what a nice uh, matchup that is. You know, Mr. Mr. Davis Cup, Roddick Stepanek bringing it home for the checks and still playing very well. Uh, you know, got through a, a uh, came from two sets to to Love Down in his first round match, and then beat Eugene in round two, playing Golbis, who uh, you know has uh, the same um, coach physio uh, these days as Dominic Team. So, uh, uh, winner of Stepanek and Golbis gets Federer. But uh, before we get to Mr. Fed, uh, who you like in uh, Stepanek and Golbis? You know, this is an interesting matchup. I mean, uh, somehow, uh, Stefan, what is he, 34? He just seems to be ageless. Um, you know, he's one of that yeah. uh, that kind of Haas-like, and even Karlovic is in the 34, 35 range. I mean, it's, it's it's fascinating how well those guys are keeping their bodies together and still able to get out and deliver, you know, the, the tennis goods um, like they are and they're on the big stage. So, you know, you got to tip your hat to him. Gulbis has been hot. You know, he's had a great run this, this last, um, when he's once he recommitted himself to tennis about a year ago and he was out of it, he was thinking about retiring. He's obviously very colorful. Uh, he's got a big game. Um, you know, he's got, this, got a backhand. He's got a backhand from the gods. He's got a huge serve. Uh, you know, and that forehand is always uh, always enjoyable to watch. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, and you're going to get paid for with him. He's, he's very, uh, very emotional. There'll probably be a couple of conduct warnings and a fine or two by the, by the time it's over. And, uh, Kind of look at Gulbis is, you know, it's interesting. If you look at a lot of these round of 32 matchups, there are not a lot of guys there who've gone deep in majors. You've got a lot of guys who've had good runs, you know, your Karlovics, your Gulbises and stuff. But, you know, they really, you know, there's not a lot of guys that have gone deep and stuff. So it'll be interesting. Here's a couple guys here who have always been kind of, you know, around, but none of these guys have gone deep in majors before. So this is a big opportunity, and whoever can really handle their nerves better than any, you know, at the best, I think will come out ahead. But I think, you know, we got to go with the younger and, and uh, younger Gulbis who's been in a little better form and uh, this year, and uh, I look for him to advance. Yeah, and uh, along with Cole Schreiber, uh, Barry Gulbis won a title on, on Saturday as well. And, uh, nice. yeah, like, like you mentioned, the, the recommitment to tennis, uh, he's he's 6-0 and in finals. When he gets to the final mm-hmm. on Sunday, he knows how to win. And, uh, you know, Kind of uh, made some noise, made some headlines uh, recently, earlier this year, when he said he, he intends or wants to get to number one in the world. So um, uh, all power to him. That's nice to hear uh, his recommitment to tennis. Obviously, a lot of work to be done, a lot of results right. to get there. But uh, nice to know that uh, Ernest Gulbis has his head on straight with uh, with respect to taking the court. So winner of um, Stepanek Gulbis, and I'll go with Gulbis like Barry, uh, takes on Roger Federer most likely. Uh, in the following round, and we talked a, a bit about uh, Lubacic's work with Raonic. We'll talk about this match before we go to break, Barry. Uh, Milos Raonic playing a Frenchman, uh, Gilles Simone, who uh, has been a little up and down. 
I've been really impressed with uh, with Raonic's play so far this year uh, and on clay uh, this year coming in. Your thoughts on uh, Milos Raonic, Gilles Simone? Wow, that's that's a great. You know, this is where I really enjoy the majors, and we get these incredibly, you know, interesting matchups with the Gasquet or Gasco. I mean, that's going to be a you know a five set thriller probably that'll go for five hours. This match here, you get these. This is a wonderful matchup, and uh, you know, you've got the power against the, just the just the cleanest one of the cleanest counter punches you're ever going to see in Simone. Uh, Simone struggled for a while this year, but then he put in a good good effort there in Rome, and he almost took out Nadal. So I think he's confident. He's home. Uh, he played super here last year. You know, he took Federer to five sets. He looked very, very good uh, in that. But on the back end of that, you got Raonic, who's, you know, who seems to, you know, he's doing better. You know, what's interesting, you got a lot of big guys doing well, you know, the big bangers. you got a, several of the huge servers, Isner, uh, Anderson, and Karlovic. You've got, um, you know, you got Raonic. you got a bunch of these big guys that actually seem to do a little bit better on the clay than, than some of the faster surfaces because they have a little bit more time to get to the ball and they can get to, you know, their serves are still very effective. Um, so, but, you know, the interesting thing with Raonic, his movement's gotten a little bit better, um, you know, and he seems to be, obviously, he's very mentally tough. So I looked, I looked for this to be a very close match, but I think he pulls this out probably in four tight sets. He seems to be winning these kind of matches lately and is kind of ready to, to go to that next level. That's a great observation about, uh, you know, the, the big men having success at Roland Garros this year, the big servers, and uh, Milos Raonic definitely in that camp. And I, I can't say enough about, uh, you know, I really applaud his, his decision to bring uh, Lubacic in, into, you know, Raonic born in Montenegro, Lubacic obviously Croatian from the same right. neck of the woods, if you will. A, a nice partnership, nice relationship there. And uh, I'm actually going to go with uh, with Milos in straights. I, I think he's uh, he's there for all business this week in uh, Roland Garros. And uh, winner of uh, Raonic and Simone will take on uh, most likely Martin Kleesen, who who won a, a clay court title earlier this year as well. And uh, Barry, we've got some more uh, ATP matches to uh, to discuss when we come back after break, as well as uh, some WTA matches. And uh, we'll be right back, Pete Zebron and Barry Buss, right after this. Do you know how fast you were going, son? Call me Ed. Do you know how fast you were going, Ed? You mean exactly? Yes, exactly. No, not exactly. How fast? Fast. Fast, sir? You were going very fast. Fast is my job, officer. Fast is your job? Yes, sir. What kind of job? I deliver, sir. What do you deliver? The world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. I thought Jimmy John's had the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. Jimmy John's does have the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. So you deliver for Jimmy John's? I deliver for Jimmy John's. So do you always deliver fast? I always deliver fast. How fast? I deliver subs so fast you freak. It's not smart to freak a cop, son. You didn't order Jimmy John's sub, sir. So if I did order a Jimmy John's sub, when would I get it? Now. What if I don't want it now? Then call later. Or I can pick it up myself. Or you can pick it up yourself. Because I'm pretty fast too. I'm sure you are, sir. Very fast. I believe you, sir. Fast than you. No way, sir. Way faster. In your dreams. You dissing me, son. No, sir. I'm polite. Fast and polite. Very polite and very, very fast. Is that a challenge, son? No, sir. It's a fact. Let's burn rubber, kid. It wouldn't be fair. Why not? You've got a fully blown V8 Camaro with slicks and headers. So? I've got a 10-speed bike. I'll let you off with a warning. <laughs> they try and make it seem like they want to protect kids from smoking. But in reality, they've been targeting children for decades. They used to make and sponsor cartoons to market cigarettes. But despite these shows being popular among children, they claimed that these cartoons were for an adult audience. Then they paid movies to feature their brands. Some of your favorite superhero movies have characters that the industry actually paid to smoke on screen. One industry exec said that we must continue to exploit new opportunities to get cigarettes on screen and into the hands of smokers. And now they carefully place posters and other ads at convenience stores and push new products that look and taste just like candy. 
Who eats candy and sees ads that are three feet off the ground? Come on. So you want to know why I'm tobacco-free? Because I don't want their marketing to reach my little sister. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think, dot com. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hard top comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hard top and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is Johan Crick, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. <laughs> And welcome back to Passing Shots. Pete Zebron with Barry Buss. Plenty to talk about here at Roland Garros with respect to third round action coming up beginning tomorrow. Plenty of blockbuster men's matches. We've discussed several of them. A couple more to talk about before we get to the ladies, Barry. And uh, I mentioned three of them just jumped out with uh, with respect to the the matchups between the guys, the the fun matches. Monfils, Fognini, Stepanek, Gulbis, and the third uh, third of these matches has to be Joe Wilfred Sanga and Jersey Janowitz. Um, wow, uh, Sanga, maybe a little bit of a uh, a fitness issue coming in. I really thought he should have had Federer and Monte Carlo in the quarterfinals there. Fed escaped that. Uh, Jersey Janowitz uh, winning the first two rounds at Roland Garros. His first two wins since Rotterdam in February. And uh, he's going to have a boatload of points to defend uh, semifinals in Wimbledon. And um, uh, possibly has righted his game on the clay. And uh, Sanga, obviously, a Frenchman playing at Roland Garros. Always a tough ask. Your your take on uh, the Sanga Janowitz match? Yeah, that's a you know that's a tough one. You got two very talented guys who've gone deep in uh, majors, who've got big wins uh, across the board the last couple of years, and uh, you know when they're playing their game, they can they can beat uh, you know they can hang with the elite players. Yeah, but their present form coming into this event has been very questionable. Sanga's fallen out of the top ten for the first time in some time, um, and just doesn't seem to be himself, doesn't seem to be working as hard. He looks almost a little overweight, to be honest with you. Um, so, yeah, just kind of questioning uh, his, his heart right now and how much he's into it. Obviously, yeah, he's got more game, I think. He just moves so much better than Janowitz does. Um, you know, it's just hard to, you know, I'm a mover guy. You know, I think in these tournaments here, in, in the long, over the long haul, this couple-week event, uh, the guys who can cover the court, the guys who can defend, um, are generally the guys who are going to come out ahead. And I just think Song is a better athlete, and, and uh, obviously having the home crowd doesn't hurt. He's played very well in Paris before, you know, with the match points he had on Djokovic a couple years ago and uh, beating Federer, I believe, last year or two years ago. Um, so, yeah, he, I just I got to look towards Song to come through this and uh, get hopefully he's a little closer to his uh, his best form than Janowitz is. And I'm not, I'm not a believer in Janowitz quite yet. He's had a terrible, terrible start to this season. Yeah, big time, big time. I I think uh, you're right, Joe. I think home cooking will do him will do him well. And uh, you know, whomever comes up with this, uh, Barry, uh, most likely in the next round. Congratulations, you you want a chance to play Novak Djokovic, most likely in the next round. And uh, 
you know, Djokovic doesn't have an easy one either. His road is very difficult going forward. Uh, he's got Marin Cilic uh, in the next right. round. And just uh, just to read the, the next list of potential players for Novak, uh, Barry, uh, he's got Cilic in the third round. Fourth round, uh, the winner of the Tsonga Janowitz match, uh, potential final against Milos Raonic, potential semi against Roger Federer, and, oh, yeah, Rafael Nadal most likely in the final. Um, wow. Uh, you know, most of the <laughs> other guys, the top four, have had uh, pretty decent, kind draws. Uh, not so for Novak Djokovic. Let's talk about his uh, matchup against Cilic, who's played some good ball uh, after coming back from his suspension. But, um what do you you see anything that jumps out at you that matchup uh, Djokovic Chilich and then we can talk about uh, Novak's road going forward. Yeah, you know I love I love you know the draw when the draw comes out it is exciting and you know these majors are not easy to win and and they, that's why they're majors and they're extraordinarily difficult uh, events uh, you know for two weeks you've just got to be on and you know you get a you get a, a draw like Djokovic has here you got five big time threats coming at you you know in the next uh, you know ten days of the tournament here so. You know, the reality, you know, what we're seeing, especially when we see, you know, what we just saw on the women's side and with Larinka and Dimitrov and stuff, you know, if the elite players are off their game just slightly, uh, that next tier of players, you know, are having a good good day, you know, they can give them all kinds of trouble. And, uh, you know, they can be and they can be bounced real, real quickly. So Djokovic has got a, you know, he's got a lot of dangerous opponents coming up. You know, if, if he plays his game, he, you know, he, he, he rolls. If he does not play, if he has an off day and, and everybody has, an off day in these majors. You just don't get a free, you know, a nice two-week pass to the final, you know, to the championship. So she's going to have a tough match in there somewhere along the lines, and all of these guys are dangerous. So it is a very difficult uh, draw that he has. Uh, he's fully capable of, of, of obviously, of also marching right through it. So uh, his form is great. Obviously, he had a little wrist issue there, so that could be a concern. He gets uh, hung out there for a couple tough rounds or, you know, a little off and on with rain and stuff like that. Not quite sure what his form's going to be, but you know he's just the class of the field. He's just so he's just so consistently um, tough, you know. And that's the thing I look at, yeah. you know, with, with these top four guys. They're just so incredibly consistent, you know. Even a you take a guy like Warinku, who had his wonderful Australian and even a great Monte Carlo. He's just not that in that champions class like these other guys are. Week in and week out, these guys deliver, and they've got the heart to fight and and uh, find ways to win matches when they're not at their best. And you can really see that that next year guys just aren't quite there. And so I believe in Djokovic. I've been a big believer in his from day one. And, uh, you know, I look for him to get through. I think he's got, I think he's pretty much got Chilich's number too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and you're right. I mean, the, the draw comes out in majors. It's, it's high excitement to, to analyze and take a look and speculate. And, you know, here we are third round. It's all, all the, all the nice blockbuster matches, at least on the men's side are coming to fruition. And, uh, you know, we've, we've reviewed several of them and I look forward to, uh, to watching the action. We're going to shift gears just a bit, uh, Barry, near the end of our, uh, show, we'll, we'll make our, we'll make our uh, selections to, uh, crown the champions in, in our minds going forward. But switching gears to the WTA, um, not nearly as many um, blockbuster matches coming up. Obviously, uh, you know, the women's side has lost their top two seeds, Serena Williams, Lena, uh, in the first couple of rounds. But um, three matches in particular jump out at me. And um, we've got this year's Australian Open finalist, uh, Dominika Sobolkova, playing um, Sam Stozer, who has been a finalist as well as a two-time semifinalist at Roland Garros. Your thoughts on, on this particular matchup? 
Ooh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think present form, Sybil Kova has been having a great run. Uh, obviously, she was wonderful down in Australia. That was a great, great, uh, great event for her. You know, just I got a chance to watch her, her play live last year at, uh, in New York and uh, just, just on the practice court. I mean, she is, she's got low margins. I mean, she takes it early and she, she tees off on everything. So if she can get it going, she can take the racket out of your hand. But Stozier's got a lot of game. Or she's got a lot of action on her ball. She can put the ball in places that, uh, you know, these clean hitters like uh, like the Silvacovas don't like it. You know, she's got a wonderful kick serve. She's going to start the points. You know, she's going to get Silvacova hitting high, you know, high wide back ends almost every point. So I like Stozer's, um, you know, as long as her mentality is good. You know, she struggles with her nerves from time to time. But I think, um, you know, she's got, she's got a lot of good history at this tournament. And uh, she seems to play her best tennis here. When she's good, she's great. And so I look for her to pull the, I don't know if that would probably be a minor upset. I think she's probably seated below Silvacova. But um, I, I look yeah. for her to advance, actually, in this one. Yeah, I would, too. In fact, if, you know, if Roland Garros uh, reseated, if you will, like Wimbledon, we may have seen a higher number uh, with uh, Soser uh, on, on the play. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, this is actually part, Barry, this is part of this just absolutely loaded uh, top quarter. Obviously, Serena Williams is, is not part of that any longer. But, uh, you know, the winner of Stoser and Sibolkova most likely will get uh, Maria Sharapova in the uh, in the next round. And, uh, you know, also, like I mentioned, Serena was part of that. We had uh, Lasicki was in there as well. So, I mean, we have, you know, Sharapova, Stoser, Serena Williams, three Grand Slam champions, uh, multiple champions, and then obviously Stoser, uh, uh, or Sabolkova, a uh, a finalist as well. So uh, yeah, Sam Stoser or Sabolkova next round would would get uh, would get sheriff. Uh, next match I want to take a look at is uh, a couple of names uh, that uh, that have you know haven't heard much of Daniela Hentikova lately, but she's uh, she's there and she's going to play uh, Angelique Kerber, who seems to get very deep in tournaments, even get to finals. But she, her 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 record in finals is just horrendous. But uh, very tough player. I don't think anybody would want to play her these days. And uh, your thoughts on uh, Daniela Hentikova and Angelique Kerber? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Look how Hentikova's been out there for so long, and she's a she's a fighter. I mean, she's probably you know got probably half a dozen surgeries, and you know she's still out there fighting the good fight. And she got herself fit and playing good tennis. Uh, you know, Kerber Kerber had a year. You know, what was she a couple of years ago? She played the most matches on tour. I think she broke into the top. I think top five or six. Um, you know, she's dangerous. I mean, she's an extremely tough, tough, tough player. She doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Hantako beforehand. That can really get off the rails on her. Um, so I look for Kerber to do everything she can to kind of just to really exploit that. Um, you know, I'm going to go with youth on this one. I think Kerber's, Kerber's got a lot of upside. Her best tennis is better than Hantakova's best tennis and uh, seems to be in a good place mentally and physically, and I look for her to advance. Yeah, and uh, the winner of that uh, match, I mean, I would go with Kerber as well. The winner of that most likely uh, would get a very intriguing player, and that is uh, Jeannie Bouchard, who uh, uh, she won her first uh, WTA title on, on Saturday as well in uh, Nuremberg, Germany. So uh, coming into the tournament in, in very nice form, always sort of a little dangerous to play a um, uh, a tournament the week before a major, but uh, you know she played one. Uh, Monica Puig played. She got actually drummed by Stoser in the first round, but uh, you know a couple other players who uh, Cole Schreiber played one and one, and so did Golbus. So three of the four titleists from Saturday are still alive and well at Roland Garros. So um, 
yeah, I'd be looking forward to whomever gets out of that Hantakova Kerber match would would most likely play Bouchard. Uh, a Kerber Bouchard match would be uh, would be very interesting there. And um, the the um, other match I'd like to talk about uh, with you, Barry, on the WTA side, a matchup of uh, of Grand Slam champions, uh, Petrik Vitova, who won Wimbledon a few years ago against two-time major champion, including 2009 at Roland Garros, Svetlana Kuznetsova. And um, Sveta has played some very good tennis coming into Roland Garros, actually one of my um, one of the dark horses I have on the women's side. But um, how do you see that matchup, Kvitova and Svetlana Kuznetsova? Oh, boy, yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> you know, check their bio rhythms. These two are so up and down, and, uh, I mean, I just don't, I mean, I, did, I could not believe that Kvitova was seated fifth in this. Yeah. I just not, I thought she was having a hor- horrible year. I just I don't know where her results have been coming from. I, I lost track of them. But um, obviously she's not a great mover. She's a great ball striker, um, but her movement is a big liability. Um, you know, and I just don't, I just have not, she, she just never looks comfortable on the clay to me, but, you know, and, and she's taking everything, you know, early and hitting it as flat as you can. Uh, you know, and that is the women's tennis play a lot of times. But Kuznetsov has got, you know, she can absorb that power that's not going to bother her. She's a much Superior athlete, um, you know, if she's healthy and she's and she's mentally focused, she's dangerous. I mean, she she can go all the way in these events and, and beat the best. Uh, her best tennis is, uh, you know, is world class uh, Grand Slam uh, winning capable. So, you know, it's it, once again, this is, you know, you, all things being equal, both players healthy, both players focused and playing their best ball. I would take Kuznetsova, and the odds of both players being healthy and playing their best ball are, are slim and none. So I don't know. You know, a lot of it just depends who shows up that day, you know, and who's feeling better about themselves on the court. But I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Kuznetsova fan. She, she's a beautiful yeah. mover on the play, and, and uh, she's got a lot of, lot of variety to her game. And, you know, you can't overlook that. You know, she's got a lot of ways to break you down, and I think she, 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 she should come out ahead. Yeah, one, possibly one of the quietest two-time uh, major champions. Yeah. You know, she's won, too. A lot of people forget that, and uh, she oh, knows how fine. to get the job done. Yes, played uh, played uh, significant doubles with Martina Navratilova to help her net game back in the day as well. So, um, and Barry, the winner of that uh, would get uh, either uh, Zafirova or most likely Anna Ivanovich, who's who's putting up uh, a very nice 2014 as well. So, uh, you know, we we're going to have a nice uh, fourth round match. Uh, whomever gets through that um, that a lot of section time. there. A lot of time. Some of these matchups are, are get complicated because we just take for granted that these guys are all equal. But I don't. I don't think Ivanovich has beaten Safarov. I think Safarov has gotten her four or five times and stuff. Oh, wow. so it, it, yeah. So it just gets complicated. You start looking at their head to head. You just never quite know how they match up in, in these kind of matches. So even though Ivanovich is having, you know, obviously had the big win over Williams and has been playing for great ten and beat Maria and so forth. You know, Safarova has her number, so we'll see how that plays out. Anything could happen. You know, she's got a lot of moxie on the clay, but then, then again, Ivanovich has won there before, so we'll, we'll see sure. what she'll see. Sure. We're going to go into, uh, before we make our picks, we're going to go into uh, a little Hall of Fame, Hall of Shame. Um, we're going to blow the trumpets for uh, some of the folks who are who are doing some good things on the clay at Roland Garros, and, uh, you know, uh, talk a little bit about how and why some of the favorites uh, didn't necessarily get it done. Hall of Fame, I'm going to lead off with uh, something that uh, probably in my mind isn't news, although everybody else seems to be getting a kick out of the fact that we've got uh, three American men in the third round. Uh, John Isner, not so much of a surprise. Uh, You know, people have been waiting for this, obviously played 
Nadal getting uh, getting to five sets against Nadal at Roland Garros a few years ago right. in the first round. But, you know, two of the other names, Donald Young and Jack Sock. My goodness, uh, how how did this happen, Barry? You know, these guys have been there. You know, we forget. You know, Donald Young was up and ranked in the 30s a couple of years back, and he, I think he's made it to the fourth round of the Open. And, you know, he's very capable, and he's beaten Murray and well ranking And he's, he's awesome. He's taken out tons and tons of guys in the top 20 in the world. So, it, you know, unfortunately, when he goes south, he goes very south. It's very public. It's very American, and it's, you know, and everyone's, you know, ready to riot in the streets, you know, and, and at White Plains because, you know, Americans aren't winning majors anymore. So the kid's got a lot of game, and, he, and he's really pulled himself together. He's growing up, unfortunately, right in front of us. Uh, and uh, when he's good, he's very good. Um, he's not, you know, he's not dominant. He's not going to be, he's not going to win majors. He's not going to go late into the second week. But that said, he's fully capable of, you know, winning a few rounds in these tournaments every every time he enters. You know, as long as the draw, he had a very, very good win in the uh, second round. And, um, you know, he's, he's there. He can play with these guys, and uh, and he can beat these guys when he, when he's healthy and playing his best ball. And Sock and, and, Sock and Johnson were, you know, was a great matchup. Both the guys, you, you know, they're the, top, the two best you know, Sokka's probably the best junior to come out of American tennis in the last decade, uh, you know, went through all yeah. the junior tennis. And Johnson is, without question, the best collegiate player to come out. And generally speaking, over historically, those, I mean, our best juniors and our best college players do quite well professionally and uh, just took them a couple of years to get into this top 50, 60 area that they're at now. And, you know, these guys are dangerous. You know, they are one-dimensional. they got the big serve, big forehand, struggle move with the movement. Um, you know, and then against against the power, you know, a strong clay quarter, they're going to struggle. But it's nice that the nice result. It's uh, you know, it beats uh, not having three guys in there. That's for sure. And uh, considering yeah. it's not our surface, um, you know, it's nice to see these guys do okay. Indeed, yeah. Congratulations to uh, John Isner, Jack Suck, and Donald Young uh, for for advancing this far. Let's see uh, if they can keep it going. And uh, obviously, there's some other names on the Hall of Fame uh, that we can talk about, especially in the women's side, but I'm going to shift gears uh, due to time to the Hall of Shame. And, Barry, I think a lot of people taking a look at the draw, oh, my goodness, Venus and Serena can play, whoa, in the third round. Well, uh, yeah, they could have played in the third round. However, both of them lost. And um, uh, slot number one in the Hall of Shame, I'm going to give that to Serena Williams uh, for a couple of reasons. I think everybody had her not penciled in to win the final, but, uh, you know, they put a Sharpie uh, in there uh, already with her name uh, hoisting up the uh, her 18th major. And it's the way she lost, uh, 6-2, 6-2, her worst loss ever at a major. Um, flat, uh, granted, her opponent, uh, who Serena was her idol growing up, watched a lot of her matches, said, you know, in press after she knew how to play her, she knew what to expect, but... You know, that's one thing to, to know what to expect. It's certainly another to execute it and get the job done and, and defend break points against. And uh, credit to Muguruza, but um, slot number one, Hall of Shame, Serena Williams. Your thought on, uh, on, that, on that match? Yeah, I mean, obviously everyone is, uh, you know, that's a shocking result. I think you know, what happens sometimes in these events, and it happened last year at Wimbledon too, once a little, once there's a couple upsets early. You know, Lena went out early. It just all of a sudden the buzz gets around the, on the grounds that, hey, these guys are vulnerable. You know, and these top players, if they're not at their top play, 
they're down an awful little bit, and they, you know, they get these second-tier players who get hot. You know, it can be over in an hour. You know, and uh, this is not unprecedented. Serena's, you know, Serena's lost quite a few matches like this over the years. Uh, maybe not quite as convincingly, but she lost to Panetta. She lost to Lissicky at uh, at Wimbledon. She lost to Ivanovic, um, you know, badly this last year in Australia, and then Sloane before that. So she's not she's not money in the bank at the majors. I mean, when she's when she's, when she's Serena. She can be so dominant, but if she's off at all, she's very vulnerable in these tournaments, and it's proven to be the case now. You know, quite you know more often than not, now she's losing more of these than she's winning. But, uh, you know, that's yeah. just that's yeah. their current experience. You know, she's not a kid anymore. You know, she's in her thirties, and this is just not that yep. easy. You know, to be to, to show up and be as motivated and focused as you know as she, she was. You know, in her better years. Sure, and uh, slot number two. Um, I'm uh, I'm gonna throw Grigor Dimitrov in there. I know he had a rough uh, yeah. go of it against Nadal on clay, but uh, it was something he said in press afterwards. Uh, namely, yeah, I had uh, had some personal things coming into this match, and I know he, tennis players are human beings and not robots. But uh, this is uh, this is round one of a major. You, you're the 11th seed, granted a tough matchup against Karlovich, but. You've played the game, Barry. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, on, on Dimitrov? So many people talking yeah. about him, and, and he loses you know, in straights. Uh, yeah, it's a disappointing result. You know, I was back at in New York. I watched his whole. He lost five sets in the first round to Susta last year at U.S. Open. I was like, wow, that's just a that's just a terrible loss for a player of that caliber, um, who really is being touted as the heir apparent. And when he's got it going on, he he can play to that level. Um, yeah, he needed to step up here. And, and have a great result. He's got to find a way to win that match. I'm sorry, you know, Karlovic is as well as he may have played. You've got to, you know, you're if you want to be considered a champion and in the conversation as as an, you know as the next uh, generation of, of stars to take over, you know, you've got to win that match. I mean, you've got to you've got to be able to advance, you know, consistently in these terms. You can't go out three sets in the first round. That's not that's not acceptable. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I was you made a good point. I mean whatever's going on privately, but these guys, you know, they're professional. He's been out there a long time. You know, you, you get that mm-hmm. stuff taken care of and you show up for your majors. you got to, you got to perform, you know? Sure. Yep. A couple minutes left in the show, Barry. Wanted to get your, uh, your um, finalists and champions on, on both the men's and the women's side, please. Well, you, you know, you wouldn't bet against the Globe Trotters in basketball. So I don't know how you bet against Nadal, uh, you know, in Roland Garros. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's in fashion to try to you know get cute and take Djokovic because he's knocked on the door a few times and Nadal's had a little vulnerability this clay court season. But you know he's uh, he's lost one time in three out of five matches on clay in his whole life. So I think you've got to uh, you know you, it's hard to look beyond him. But obviously you know I'm gonna it's a two horse race in my opinion. I think Djokovic and and him will meet again. And uh, just in, in that in that in that match in that finals, it's just hard for me to believe that anyone's gonna beat him on that center court. Um, yeah, on the I'm, I'm, point? yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going fifty, fifty and a half. Djokovic, forty nine and a half. Nadal, yeah. very close. It's in vogue. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Eventually, we're going to be right uh, betting against him, but I don't think you're going to make. You're not going to cash a lot of tickets betting against that guy. There, he's just too. Uh, he's just he's special. He really is, and uh, you know it's going to be really yeah. hard. To, uh, if he's healthy, stuff to stuff to beat. And your thoughts on the women's side? Boy, oh boy, yeah, you gotta you gotta reevaluate your women's thing every every match here because it seems like they're dropping like flies. Um, tough, tough to say. You know, I think so much of it's just trying to get through this first week. You know, it just seems that uh, right now they're all looking a little shaky out there. 
you know, I'm a Maria fan. Uh, she's from out here. I, I, you know, I believe in her competitiveness. I just think she's tougher mentally than a lot of these other gals. Mm-hmm. Um, even if she and she's she's been she's proven that she can win without her best. And a lot of these other gals are not capable of that often. They you know they fold up pretty quickly. So I'm going to go with Maria on this one. I think she's got. Uh, I think when Serena gets out of the draw, she her shoulders relax and she knows that uh, you know this tournament's very winnable and she's capable of rising to the occasion. But yeah, who do you think might oppose her in the final? Boy, oh boy, I, I haven't. Uh, I'm not familiar with the exact breakup of the draw, but you know, I'm a, I'm a Stozer fan. I mean, Stozer, Stozer. You know, she's she's got. She, I think she's ready to make a run again. It's, you know, she's when she's healthy and playing well, you know, she can go deep in these events. So, um, but you know, I'm not. I haven't. I'm not exactly. I don't know the draw in front of me now, so I'm not exactly sure. Oh, uh, let me give you. Let me give you some names from the bottom half. Uh, Kuznetsova, Ivanovic, Stevens, Halep, Yankovic, uh, Irani. Go with Halep. I think Halep, Halep has been fantastic this last calendar year. She's, I don't think anyone's had a larger rise in the rankings. Her. She's one of the cleanest ball strikers I've ever seen. Uh, she's confident. She's healthy. I mean, she is, uh, you know, it could be her time, and that's a wide-open draw there. That's something that she could uh, she could really take advantage of. I think that's a good opportunity for her. So I'll take Halep on the bottom half. That's actually my uh, selection at this point after two rounds are through as well. Maria Sharapova, as you mentioned, you know, the shoulders loosen up, uh, almost like uh, when Mr. Nadal uh, vacates a tournament, uh, Roger Federer uh, has a different outlook on the tournament as well. I'm I'm going Maria Sharapova over um, a very gallant effort from uh, Simona Halep in the the women's final. So uh, we've got all four finalists the same. Uh, Barry, you've got... uh, Nadal over Joker. I've got Djokovic over Nadal, and we both agree Maria Sharapova over Simona Halep in the WTA final. And um, it's a wrap for today. I, I really appreciate you being on the show, Barry. And um, for Barry Buss, this is Pete Zebron on Passing Shots on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Good night and God bless. Thank you. Is that all, folks?